0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Impact of influence. The tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths they are linked to. Hello, friend. Matt Harrison, Seton Tucker here, and we are so grateful and thankful that you've decided to spend some time with us. Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, murdochpodcast.com, and Matt at gmail.com is a good way to find us.
1: So, we are bringing this episode to you on the week of the one year anniversary of the deaths of Maggie and Paul.
0: And it was on Moselle, which had once been their sanctuary that became the place of horrific acts on June 7th, 2021. And the terror. That they must have felt in their last moments and the anguish their loved ones must feel is something we empathize with and our thoughts go out to the family members and friends.
1: And the residents of Hampton and Colleton counties.
0: We have some things that have been leaked over the last few days as we hit that anniversary mark of the murders of Paul and Maggie. Stephen, where do you want to begin with this?
1: Well, I just want to say first that these new leaks give me hope that this is not a cold case and that this is still a very active investigation.
0: And that is what Mark Keel, whose agency you hear us mention, sled a lot on this show, this podcast, and People refer to it sometimes as South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, State Law Enforcement Division. But that's that's what it that is. When you hear us talk about SLED, that's what that is. And Mark Keel has said the uh, investigation into the deaths is still very much active, he said, within the last couple of weeks.
1: Well, so let's do a recap of what we covered in our last episode about the timeline and what your thoughts were.
0: If you were with us last week, I talked about this because it jumped out at me from the John Monk article, and it mentioned that Jim Griffin— who is Alec Murdoch's, one of Alec Murdoch's attorneys, said that Alec left around nine. Now, up until then, that time frame had not been mentioned. So when I saw that, you immediately got to work and scurried back to the previous fall when Jim Griffin spoke with Cody Alcorn from... Fox News, Carolinas. Thank you. At that time, Jim Griffin was saying... That the time the murders were supposed to have happened between 9 and 9.30, Alec was on uh, bedside of his mother, who suffers from dementia, watching a game show. Did the guy? Did he leave at 4, 3, 2? But now all of a sudden it's saying around 9.
1: This week, we have the phone records from Chris Wilson, who is a friend of Alec Murdoch's, where he was talking to him on his cell phone on the way to Varnville from Moselle. And it says around nine. PM. Right. So this is the first time that we've heard that he was in close proximity to Moselle in the time frame where Maggie and Paul were murdered.
0: Because we've had that big question as to whether he saw them at Moselle. Yes, that's been and honestly, I think for the longest time we thought there was no way he saw them.
1: Right, and if we go back to the Wall Street Journal article. In that article, it says sources close to the family say that Alec had previously taken his father to the hospital. He came home. He took a nap, but he never said saw Maggie and Paul.
0: That seems to be untrue now. And John Marvin, who is Alec's brother, through uh, exchanges with you, has said that he knew Paul was going to have dinner with Maggie. But he doesn't know what time that was. He doesn't know he has not confirmed whether he thought they saw Alec, right?
1: Right, but, but you probably are going to have dinner before 9 p.m. And now... A report that came out this week from Fitz News that says there is a video from Paul's cell phone that shows that Alec was talking to Maggie near the dog kennels on the evening of the night that they were murdered.
0: So that would be kind of a game changer in the sense that it would be the first confirmation that uh, Alec saw them before he left.
1: Yes. Yeah. So and, and, and that
0: which we thought last week, right? We, we, you know, putting the timeline together, it made sense they would have been there at eight thirty, eight forty.
1: It would be unusual for him not to have seen them. But now it appears that there is video evidence that he was there.
0: But Griffin kind of said as much. But,
1: but let's also talk about why they were at the dog kennels. I mean, obviously, it's not surprised that Maggie and Paul were at the dog kennels since that's where their bodies were were found. But why were they at the dog kennels? Now, we do have this rumor that has been consistently circulated about Paul going back to Moselle to check on a dog that was injured. Because he worked friend. with John
0: Marvin earlier in the day. Yes, he I'm was working. he
1: was working with John Marvin, but there have also been reports that he was checking on a dog. So it would make sense that he was taking a video if they were checking on a dog. Maybe he was sending a video back to a vet or a friend about this dog. So that kind of seems to make sense. But again, this is just conjecture.
0: Right. And certainly it doesn't prove guilt or innocence if Ellick was there uh, at that time.
1: But it proves inconsistencies with stories.
0: Yes. With what Griffin had said at one point and, and some of the stuff that was reported by sources, uh, by various outlets, it turned out not to be true. That happens in the course of uh, an investigation. So that, if, if you add it up, like I said last week, and people have jumped on that Theory that I had that there is a a very short window. Let's see if he, if he leaves at eight forty to get to his mom's at nine to nine thirty. That's a twenty minute window before Paul is killed because we believe what's his death certificate it says nine, right?
1: The death certificate says nine, and the coroner has said nine to nine thirty. Okay.
0: So it's a very short window, and it's also a short window on the other side because nine to nine thirty, nine thirty ends. We know Alex makes the nine one call at ten oh seven, so there's not a lot of wiggle room in there,
1: right? And now there are cell phone records that we talked about last week and video evidence.
0: And also the state newspaper. Seaton. what else?
1: Well, they said that Maggie was running away when she was shot. And that, I mean, to me, that really brought home to me the terror that she must have felt in her final moments. Because
0: we know she was shot in the back. And in the back, she was almost de- uh, decapitated. Is the the one report that came out from Wall Street Journal?
1: But just also how horrible she's running away. She mm-hmm, she mm-hmm. must have. it really just brought horrible. it home to me.
0: It had to be incredibly frightening and scary and awful. And she might even have seen Paul murdered. And that's just seeing your son murdered. Then you're run. It just it well, had that, to be an ugly scene.
1: That's a question for me. Who who was first?
0: <sighs> see what else did we learn this week?
1: Well, we learned that the state says that neither gun had been recovered. So we had previously talked about there were two different guns. There was a shotgun and an AR-15 and one of the guns belonged to the Murdoch family.
0: That's what we had heard. That was was reported.
1: In my mind, I thought that that meant that one of the guns had been recovered. But according to the state paper, it looks like neither gun had been recovered.
0: Again, Paul murdered with a shotgun. Maggie with the... Uh, AR-15.
1: We don't know which gun belonged to the family. That really hasn't come out. But it also makes you question, were they murdered at the same time? Or if both guns were disposed of, were they disposed of at the same time, or was one disposed of prior to the other other gun?
0: Well, okay, we we think that according to the death certificate, as we've mentioned, Paul was murdered at nine, even though the coroner ruled nine to 930. So It seems to reason that Maggie was killed after and sometime before 930. Right. Right. I mean, that's what we are assuming at this point.
1: I mean, it's just conjecture, but we also should say that Paul's phone was found with with his body and that Maggie's phone was found the next day slightly down the road.
0: Yeah, down there. Somebody obviously had taken it and thrown it in to the bushes on the side of the road.
1: Right. So there was a disposal of her phone, but there was also a disposal of two weapons.
0: So if you really want to start just spitballing about things, somebody could have technically killed Paul and left. And then another person comes along, kills Maggie, takes the phone.
1: Right. We don't know if this... (laughs) Yes. We don't know if this is two people or if, if it's one person who came back and used two separate weapons. We've always thought the fact that there were two weapons involved meant that there were two killers. But it could also mean that the time of deaths were different.
0: And also, we should mention that it's quite likely that Murlocks had both those kind of guns, a, an AR-15 and a shotgun. Yeah, the, the, Down in that part of the world, uh, AR-15s are pretty common if you're going to go hunting a boar and that kind of thing.
1: With our weapons expert that we had on, he— Basically said those are pretty common. So uh, people hear the term AR-15 and they think, oh, my gosh, this is an assault weapon. Like, like but
0: somebody from, you know, a, a gang or a mob. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, that those are relatively common in that low country area.
1: The other thing that Fitz reported to was about this, a rumored affair with an attorney.
0: With Alec?
1: Yes. Alec and this is the first time I've seen this in print.
0: We've seen it on social media, but we did not want to go down that path. All right, there's uh, been another recent ruling or two that we need to have our legal analyst mull over. He's a former district attorney and a former defense attorney. He is John Snyder. Hey, John.
2: Hey, guys. How you doing today?
0: We're uh, doing well. Hope you are. And we have a ruling on one of the things that you predicted would happen, which is that Alec Murdoch would basically pass on the inheritance from Maggie Murdoch. Explain all that, how that goes, Seaton.
1: So we just know Judge Hall this week has found that Alec violated a court order by passing on this inheritance.
0: And that was reported by Fitznews. John, your thoughts on the judge saying, Alec, you cannot pass that on to Buster?
1: Well, I think
2: I, the judge didn't say that exactly. Okay. What the judge did say is that Alec did not have authority... To decline his interest in the estate. And so there is still an open question related to. Ultimately, does he have a right to disclaim his interest in his wife's estate? So the judge basically said uh, Murdoch, you you had these very clear parameters in which you could act related to your financial interest as a result of a receiver being appointed and you violated the terms of that. The, the copy of the order is still floating out there, but but if the judge says you weren't allowed to do that and it's not an effective, it, it's almost like you didn't have the authority to do it, and does that lack of authority mean it's invalid, is, is the question.
0: So this isn't over, is what you're saying. This doesn't mean that it's not going to go to Buster because there's going to be other... Legal wranglings now.
2: That's right. It it means that all that the order means at this time, until further proceedings, is you do not have the authority to disclaim your interest.
1: Would well, would the receivers have the authority to claim or disclaim his interest?
2: They would. They would be full. They'd be fully legal. That like the receivers. 100% could, in fact, disclaim his interest in her estate.
0: But they wouldn't do that, would they? I mean, they, their, their job is to get as much money from Alec as they can, and if it's passed on to Buster, they don't have access to it.
2: Their Their appointment is to administer properly and not commit waste of the assets of Alec Murdoch. And and that could look lots of different ways okay. and and in ways that you and I might not think are the, you know, we might, we might have an issue with it, but that doesn't mean they don't have the right and, and requirement to do that.
0: And we're talking about Alec disclaimed his rights to Maggie's estate, which was the family's Edisto Beach House, Moselle Hunting Grounds. And I think it's like $3.9 million, somewhere around there for the... Moselle property and 900 grand or so for the Edisto property. And if he passes on it, it would go to Buster. Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up. Some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today.
1: We also have the jailhouse tapes. So the the federal judge ruled that the jailhouse tapes do not fall under Title Three. Is that right, John, Title III? Correct. Okay, so can you first recap what Title Three is?
2: Basically, Title Three affects the rights of inmates and how— it's basically the civil rights of people related to the criminal justice process. And in this federally filed lawsuit, Alex' attorneys— Filed a, a lawsuit to basically say his federal rights were violated by the release of the recordings that were done in the jail pursuant to reaching out to family and, and friends during during his time in, in jail. And so that was the basis of the lawsuit. The uh, opponents and the defendants in the case filed an action defending that and, and asking that, that the case be dismissed and that no injunction be issued. And the judge has ruled on whether his civil rights under Title III have been violated, you know, requiring an injunction to be brought about.
1: No, originally you kind of thought that Title III would apply, that maybe it was a violation of his rights.
2: I did and and you know the the nice thing about federal orders is it's not like a one page you know motion denied motion granted they usually read like small law text and this particular order is very well uh written and clear about how 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 the judge reached her decision and so you know, after reading her decision and how she applied it to particular cases, I understand her ruling and and I, I see why why it would be argued. And she and she says, I can see why you would argue that, but here's here's what I believe the law to be on this issue, and that this is how we're going to proceed.
1: Well, it does yeah. go back to state court
2: it goes back to state court and so lawyer, you know, lawyers have an obligation to either argue the law as it exists or to make good faith arguments on what the law should be. And so this particular argument was made in good faith. And, and look, that's part of the fun of of doing podcasts for me is I'm going to be right sometimes and I'm definitely going to be wrong. And that's, that's part of what makes it fun is to interact with our listeners and, you know, we have, yeah, I, I am never claim to have the corner on all the knowledge <laughs> and ne- neither do you guys. And that's what, that's what makes it fun is to, if I'm wrong about something and you read a judge's order and you're like, yeah, I, absol- I absolutely was wrong on that.
1: We know now that it goes back to state court and they're going to rule on whether the FOIA request is proper. So uh, kind of explain what the next step is.
2: Yeah, so, so what's interesting is, like like every good book, there's a little bit of a cliffhanger at the end of the order. And so at the end of the order, the judge says, I was asked to rule on whether this was a violation under Title Three. I was not asked to rule on whether this, re, the release of these tapes violated the FOIA statutes under South Carolina law. And and the judge left open the door to say, this may very well not meet, the release of these tapes may not meet any exception or basis for FOIA, but that's not in front of her to decide at this time. So not only is she showing her wisdom in deciding the case, but she's also showing judicial restraint in Saying, hey, I can't rule on this because it it, it hasn't been asked for me to rule on. But there's there's another there's there's more discussions to be had on whether these tapes should be released. But those discussions should be had under South Carolina's FOIA statutes, not under federal Article three law.
0: Well, John, we did manage to get a hold of the order and it does say I'm going to read from the order. Uh, Section two, release to the press, a determination that Title three does not apply to the recordings here does not mean such recordings were properly released to the press pursuant to the South Carolina FOIA. Although prisoner calls are routinely recorded in state and federal detention in prison facilities, the parties have cited no case in which such recordings were released to the press pursuant to a freedom of information request or otherwise. So that clears up. Uh, well, puts it into legalese what you were talking about.
1: And they don't cite any case law where prisoner telephone calls have been released to the public.
0: You also had some other thing to talk about as far as fees.
1: Yes, so we had a listener question, which was on our Facebook page. And this person questions why a law firm would allow an individual lawyer to pay fees directly to them. And explain why they're asking this question in the first place.
0: Because we discussed in the... Last episode, Alec's buddy was also his co-counsel on a case, Chris Wilson, and he got the check from the insurance companies, and Chris then was supposed to dole him out to the attorneys involved, but instead of writing the check to Alec's former law firm, he wrote it directly to Alec Murdoch. So, John, what's your response to that Facebook comment?
2: Certainly, we're wrong on that. We're wrong on that. I, I checked the South Carolina rules to, you know, to look. I'm going to do some more research on that to see if there's an ethics opinion that speaks directly on that. The difference is it wasn't client's money. It was lawyer to lawyer money, but certainly it's not, it wouldn't be the way that you should do it. It doesn't mean that necessarily it wasn't done that way down there at the time.
0: Anything else for John Seaton? I think that's it. All right. Hey, John Slater, thanks, man. We'll talk soon.
1: Thanks, guys. Love being with you.
0: Bye. All right, so before we wrap, there was an interesting thing that happened in Islandton this past weekend, and Islandton, by the way, is very, very, very small area, but it is where part of Moselle is because Moselle spreads out through a lot of different areas.
1: So we had a listener reach out to us this past week, and we also got some confirmation on social media that this incident appears to have happened.
0: And we, what else you know, we tried to reach out to the Varnville Police Department because we think that they'd be the agency in charge of that event in Islandton and no response. Hard to get hold of them.
1: Yeah, we tried to find a police report and I also reached out to the family and I did not get a response. But in the early morning hours last Friday, which is within a week of the year anniversary of Maggie and Paul's death, a silver Ford F 150 entered the property, which is on Moselle Road in close proximity to the Moselle property where Maggie and Paul were killed, the Ford F-150 pulls up to the house, and two people exit the vehicle, and they're both masked and armed. Now, the homeowner went inside, got a gun. There was some gunfire exchanged, but I don't believe anyone was injured during this incident, but the truck did leave, and they left by banging through a gate in the cow pasture. So I just thought that this was really interesting. Again, we're not claiming this is any way related to the, you know, dust at Moselle, but it just was interesting that this kind of activity the, happened. And the
0: timing and all that, yeah.
1: It struck me as very strange.
0: Islandton, South Carolina, population 64. And uh, the Murdoch hunting lodge, known as Moselle, Moselle Road in Islandton, 1770 acres but it spans different counties, Colleton and Hampton counties. But yeah, a small little town to have something, this double murder, which they immediately said, no, nobody to worry here. And then you have this shoot up right near Moselle. Crazy.
1: Yeah, just very, struck me as very strange. So before we wrap up, I want to talk about how much we've wanted to tell the story of Maggie. We have, for months now, reached out to everyone we know who may have a connection to Maggie. South Carolina is a small state. You usually know someone who knows somebody. This week alone, I've reached out to four people. And if you're a listener and you knew her and you'd like to talk to us, we would love to be able to tell our listeners about who she was as a person.
0: Because we have not even read much about Maggie and there has not been a lot uh, written about Maggie. So she deserves to have her story told. Uh, If you want to reach out to us, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, murdochpodcast.com. And uh, we are always grateful and thankful and love to hear from you. So chime in and we will talk again soon. Rollercoaster prices, supply chain glitches, political unease. They do their best to wreck my business plans. With so many unknowns, how do I know I'm making the right decisions? Aon helps me stay on top of things. They have expert points of view on volatility from around the world. Paired with local insight that helps me get back on solid ground. Better decisions. Aon.
2: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
0: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49, perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
2: Ba 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 ba.
0: The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore.
2: I don't you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children.
0: What are you thinking?
2: What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood.
0: And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wuderick. And me, Murder in House Two, a new podcast from Crowd Network.